ready to talk about a vision of material things in the material world that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and chapter 6. The use of material things according to Scripture. I'll start off by reading you something. It's a few years old by now. Uh, it's called the Yuppie's Prayer. People don't use the word yuppie anymore, but there's, it's still fun to make, you know, fun to ridicule yuppies, don't you think? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Cuisinart to keep. I pray my stocks are on the rise, that my analyst is wise. That all the wine I sip is white, that my hot tub's watertight. That racquetball won't get too tough, that all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my mobile phone still works, that my career won't lose its perks. My microwave won't radiate, my second home won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't crow, close, that my investment fund always grows. And if I go broke before I wake, I pray my Lexus they don't take. That's all for now. That's the Uppies prayer. I've also uh, collected over the years a handful of, of polls along the lines of, what would you do for a million dollars? It's another one about money. My favorite, surely, is another one that's also kind of old by now. It appeared in USA Today a few years ago, asking, what would you do for a million dollars? Would you do any of the following things? Would you, question number one, never see your best friend again? Number two, spend two years in jail? Number three, permanently move to a foreign country. Or number four, throw your pet off a cliff. Oh, no. I had a parakeet at the time. I was caught. I was caught. Does the Bible care about mundane things like our attitude toward money? Do you know there are some critics who say that the Bible's interest in things like money shows that, especially Paul's letters, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, Titus, show that he's lost his edge. You know, earlier on he was, you know, he was hot on mission and sacrifice and cause of Christ and the cross, and now he's become so pedestrian and taken up in the affairs of daily living, money management, things like that. A real, especially critics, these are critics who saw too many existentialist movies. And, you know, they think everything needs to be a crisis and a moment of great existential angst and daring everything. And they, they do really criticize Paul for his interest in guiding people in the mundane affairs such as how to use your money. Well... I would say, actually, that, that the fabric of faithfulness in everyday life is essential to the Christian faith, to the Christian cause. Knowing how to walk with the Lord with material things is, is actually fundamental to the daily uh, walk with Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, uh, begin the discussion of this, a discussion that we really need. Because not only is there a danger of becoming, as Paul will say, greedy for money, but there's also a danger of becoming too appreciative of this world and letting creature comforts govern your decisions. There's also a danger in rejecting God's good creation. 
and not giving thanks to him for the gifts that he's given his children. So let's look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. And you'll notice immediately that the language here is very strong as Paul describes what is troubling the church. He says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times or in the last days, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, you're ready for some serious, serious heresy here, aren't you? Now comes the description of the terrible thing that these hypocritical liars say. They say people shouldn't get married. Verse 3. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So here is now this teaching that he was so concerned about, this hypocritical lie, this doctrine of demons, and it is this, a denial of the goodness of God's creation. The idea that godliness is practiced by forbidding marriage, by abstaining from certain foods. Now again, you understand the issue is not that it's immoral to abstain from marriage. Some people have the gift uh, of, of singleness, and some people simply can't find a suitable marriage partner, in which case it's good to abstain from marriage. That's not the issue. The issue is somebody who says it's right, it's morally imperative, you are holy if you abstain from marriage because sexual activity taints you. There was a, a, a conception that denial of all bodily pleasures purifies the mind. That was taught by some Greeks in antiquity, and some Christians took it up. For example, Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages said that, uh, that sexual intercourse, even within marriage, is always evil because it produces an excess of pleasure that keeps the mind from contemplating God. Well, I don't know. First of all, Aquinas was a monk. So how would he know? Just, I've always wondered about that. If anybody knows about Aquinas, you can tell me. But, uh, and furthermore, I'm not, I don't think I'll go any farther down that particular road. But, the Bible never says excess of pleasure. I don't know anywhere where God says, no, you can't do that. It's too pleasant. Do you? Likewise, denial of foods. And again, you know, probably there are a lot of people in America who should deny themselves some food, especially along the lines of second desserts. But the idea that there is holiness, that there is righteousness in saying, I will not imbibe, you know, refined sugar or fat or cream cheese or, you know, animal products of any kind and vegetarianism is holiness and so forth. Uh, if you choose to eat a certain way, fine. But that, that's not constitutive of holiness. So what they've done, in fact, is taken a Hel Greek Hellenistic dualistic concept that said the body is evil and it corrupts and drags the mind down. And they've maybe taken a few Bible verses and then they've said that's a Christian idea. And Paul says it isn't. 
The biblical idea is that all that God created is good. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected. Nothing is to be cast away as worthless and of no value. Now, my translation and your translation probably says, if it is received with thanksgiving. That little word, if, actually isn't there in the Greek. It's actually literally being received with thanksgiving. So, if it's received, or for the Christian, since it's received. Once it has been received with thanksgiving. That is to say, every created thing that God makes is good in itself... And it becomes better or becomes sanctified, that is, it becomes consecrated to God when we receive it with thanksgiving and when we consecrate it to ourselves and to godly use by verifying that by the word of God and by prayer. If I can stick with uh, you know, sexuality and so forth, then we would say Aquinas is wrong. Aquinas was a, a church father and a great theologian in many ways, but he was wrong on this point. Sexuality is good. It is not evil. God created it, and God created it as a good part of life. Within its proper channels, as I say, within marriage, sexuality is a good thing. I will tell you, I'll go from one church history point to another and tell you that while Aquinas said, you know, basically, no, it's always evil, the Puritans in the 16th century responded to that by saying, in fact, before people get married, and of course they're assuming that people... Uh, remain chaste and retain their virginity until marriage, that the married couple should pray about their sexual life that was about to begin, you know, like right before they got married and right after they got married. They should consecrate it to God. That may seem, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's weird, praying about your sex life. But in fact, I, I think that's actually wise and good. Why wouldn't you pray about your sex life? It's part of life. It's part of God's creation. It's part of... You know, the goodwill that he has for his children. If you pray for your, for your health and you pray for your finances and the rest, why not pray about your sex life? So I think, although it sounds odd to people, and candidly the Puritans express themselves in some strange ways, but if you get the gist of what they're driving at, they're absolutely right. And he goes on to tell us that all good things that God created are sanctified by the word of God in prayer. I want to just work on that idea that sanctified by the word of God. What word of God sanctifies all creation? What might he be talking about? We need to think of a word of God that blesses all creation. Can you think of any word of God that sanctifies, Terry? Genesis? Jesus, what did he say? Are you thinking of anything in particular? Uh, okay, as the, okay, yes. Okay. Now, I'll take that in a certain direction, maybe. Uh, the very fact of Jesus being incarnated, some people say, blesses created life, bodily life. And I think that's true. There's another word of God that blesses all that God created. Donald. It is good. When God created, he kept saying something over and over again. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. That was his evaluation of his creation. We could also think of Jesus, who said, uh, there was a time, of course, you understand, that the Jewish people were forbidden to eat certain foods, but Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark chapter 7 says. So he blessed, by his word, all of God's creation. There's actually a little line of, of 
speech along in, in the theology of Paul. Elsewhere, talking about food, he says, in Romans 14, he talks about eating meat and eating vegetables and, and the Christian's liberty with regard to food. He, he ends it by saying, whatever is not of faith is sin. That is to say, whatever you take in as a blessing with faith consecrated to God, that can be, that's holy. If you don't consecrate it to God, if you use it for yourself or turn it to evil purposes, then it's sinful. In other words, creation... And here's another one that Paul says in Titus 1.15. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. In Romans 14.23, whatever is not of faith is sin. So all created things are good. Cotton is good. Makes nice clothes. Wrinkles a lot, but they're nice clothes. Food is good. Good recipes are good. Furniture is good. Inventions like television, telephones, stereos, those are good too. I would say they have a mild goodness. That is to say, it's not like they're good no matter what. They have to be consecrated by the word of God in prayer. They have to be received with thanksgiving. That is to say, they have to be turned in the right direction. You could maybe think of it most easily with a thing like the telephone, which is good. I mean, overall, we, we have phones because we're, we think our lives are overall better with a phone than without the phone. A tool is an instrument for talking to mom and dad when you live far away, or brothers and sisters, or friends, or children, right? But a phone is not, it's not just the phone itself is good, it's the use to which a phone is put. And so, if someone calls you up at 6.30 to sell you, you know, linoleum on sale, then it's not good anymore. I'll just give you a freebie here at our house with a name like Doriani. You know, our name gets butchered a lot. And they call, you know, is Mr. Dobrini here? No, click. That's just, it's over. And we tell our kids, you know, kids, if they can't pronounce your name, they're not your friend. And so when the phone rings, now sometimes it's for fun, they say, Hey, Dad, it's a solicitor. They called us the Doranies. So they can't be any friends of ours. One time, one time, somebody was calling me on a very important church consultation, you know. So that, no, they didn't, that didn't really ever happen. But, uh, so be careful about that little bit of advice. God's creation is good, but it has to be directed properly. You think of phones. Think of sexuality. It has to be directed properly. Think of food. If you overindulge, it's destructive. If you eat properly, it's very good. So you have to direct God's good creation. We could also think of drama, things like televisions and movies and so forth. Um, intrinsically, the communication of ideas through media is, is good. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with acting techniques and putting it on film. But it all depends on what you do with it. If you use those techniques in, in editing and film distribution and, and creation and so on, in order to promote wicked ideas, then of course it's evil. But if you promote that which is right and beautiful and good and true, then it's good. So creation is good. It has to be consecrated to God. Receive with thanksgiving, turned toward Him with gratitude. In other words... Legalism and asceticism. Asceticism is a word that means the, the, the practice of denying oneself. Have the appearance of virtue. 
but in tr- and it appears that you're taking a strong stand and saying no to sin and no to the world. But in fact, it's, it's too easy. It's just too easy to say, no, it's all bad. Like, this is now mildly controversial. You know, things, certain kinds of music. Jazz is bad because it's dissonant. And God is the God of order and of peace and of harmony, they say. Well, you know, I don't think he meant harmonic triads uh, when he said that. Um, or rap music is bad because it doesn't have enough melody and doesn't have traditional harmonies and instrumentation has too much beat and so on and I would say you know it all depends on the lyrics and how it's used it's not the music per se it's easy to say it's evil it has the appearance of being strong for God but in fact all God created is good and should be consecrated to him that's the basic view of wealth described in chapter 4 then in chapter 6 he goes on to um, tell us a few more things about money that we learn to our profit. Chapters 5 and 6 have lots of just good casual advice um, that is to say not highly theological. Uh, it's a little bit like the book of Proverbs. You know, these are things you want to know to live a good uh, Christian life, a faithful life. Chapter 6 begins by saying this. I'm just going to read it to you, the first few verses. I've lost my place. Sorry. Verse 3 is where I want to start. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the godly teaching is conceited, he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talks, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Now, this is one more blast against the false teachers, in which he says that those, just notice a little, a little uh, analogy he uses, that those who agree, or those who believe his doctrine, have a sound mind. They've been soundly instructed. That word sound really means healthy. They have a healthy instruction. They have a healthy mind. <clears throat> but there are others who have a sick mind, morbid mind, a mind leading to death. And one mark of the mind that leads to death and these false teachers, is that they think that godliness is a means to gain, that is to say, to financial advantage. In the ancient world, there were a group of people called peripatetic teachers. Peripatetic comes from a Greek word, peripateo, which means I, I walk around. That is to say, they didn't have schools, they just walked around from village to village, and city to city, uh, sort of proclaiming their virtues, saying that they could teach uh, methods of persuasion and so forth that would allow people to rise. And they charged a lot for their services. And it appears that some of these people thought that Christianity could be similar. We'll teach you the way of God, the way of salvation. We'll charge you for it. And uh, they thought that godliness was a means to great gain. Incidentally, that thing that I just told you about is probably why Paul often says he refused to take money. So would it so be clear to his supporters that he was not in it for the money. That's why he supported himself with tent making. And he, in some of his letters, he says, you know, I didn't take anybody's money and so on. Not to say you can't, but that's just, that's just the way Paul chose to do it. Well, they think that godliness is a means to great gain, says Paul in verse 5. And, and, and Paul says, you know, actually, they're, they're kind of right. Verse 6, godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment. 
is great gain. That is to say, it's not financial riches you get, but the riches that come from contentment. That's the riches. That is to say, wealth, as Paul goes on to say in verse 7, is fleeting. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Do we have any, anybody know any sayings that sound kind of like that in our culture? What? Attached to a hearse. Never saw a U-Haul attached to a hearse. That's one. What else? I heard somebody else say it. You can't take it with you. Or what good is it to be the richest man in the, in the uh, cemetery, right? Now, we have sayings like that. And they had sayings like that in antiquity, too. Paul's saying, look, we all know that when you die, it's gone. You didn't bring anything, can't take anything out. But if we have food and clothing, food and covering, we will be content with that. Now, here's what he's saying. Godliness with contentment is gain, but here's how. The gain is not in material things. Don't become godly to gain materially. The gain is learning how to be content with little or much. Now, actually, Paul is, is working again with an idea that was around in the ancient world. The Stoics believed that the greatest thing you could be is content in every circumstance. If you, were, if you had an abundance, you didn't become addicted to it. If you were poor as dirt, had no uh, clothing, you know, no food, you could still be detached from your pain. That was the epitome of a good life. It's also so Paul is playing with that Stoic idea and saying, you know who really knows contentment? You know who really knows how to live with much or with little? It's the Christian. Because the Christian knows that God takes care regardless. But then he gives something much more concrete. He says, the Christian knows how to be content with two things. Do you see them? What does a Christian need to be content? Food and covering. The Greek is covering, actually, not clothing, but covering including a roof. We say food, clothing, and shelter. That's how we describe it. In, in Greek, they had one word that included clothing and shelter. So food, clothing, and protection from the elements, a roof over your head. That's all you need in order to be content. That's all you need to actually live and by God's grace. That should be enough for us. Verses 9 and 10, he then talks about those who want to get rich. He says, people who want to get rich fall into a temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root, or some people translate the root, of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, now in verse 9, he warns about getting trapped by the desire for money and the desire for material wealth. And you know, it's almost as though Paul was describing our age more than his own. Because in this day, it is so easy to get trapped by the desire for riches and money. Because people will extend you a loan. And it is possible nowadays to own more on your house than the house is worth. It is possible to buy a car put $1,000 down or $500 down, drive off with a new car, it loses $4,000 in value the minute you drive off the lot. And so now you owe more than the car is worth. And I know people, and I know Christians, 
who owe more than their house is worth, more than their car is worth, and they've got three credit cards, and they're all maxed out, and they're trapped. They'll say to you things like, I can't send my kids to the school I want to send them to when they're college age. I can't tithe, and I can't pay my bills. And they're not lying. They really can't. They just have nothing left. Because they thought that the good life came from possessing and consuming what their heart desired. And you'll be trapped by it. He goes on to say that the root of this is the love of money. Now, some people say that there's a complex issue uh, in terms of the Greek language, which I will not delve into, that it should be translated the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Or love of money, it's even translated sometimes, the love of money is the root of all evil, which is, or even sometimes people say, money is the root of all evil. And those aren't quite right. What he's saying is, the love of money leads to all kinds of evils. It's not like if you see somebody let's say, being disrespectful to their parents. Or you see somebody, oh, I don't know, it's just one I could think of, telling a lie, that, that somehow every sin is traceable to money. They're hoping to get money out of it. I mean, that's not true. People sometimes are mean just to, for the sake of being mean, not to get money out of it. But what he is saying is this, there's hardly a limit to the problems you can get into if you love money and say, I've got to get rich, that's his point. What should our attitude be then? Well, I'll give you a little acronym here. Beg for the right approach, the right attitude toward money. Money should be used three ways, three uses of money. We'll talk about the attitude a little bit more. B is for basic needs, food, covering, food, clothing, and shelter. The E stands for enjoyment. I'll talk about that in a minute where it comes from the Bible. And G is for giving. Basic needs, enjoyment, and giving are the three uses to which we should put our resources. I read verse 8 of chapter 6. Enjoyment, not indulgence, because that's not the purpose. But enjoyment comes up in verse 17. And here he switched topics. In 5 to 10, he's talking about those who want to get rich. In 17 and 19, he's talking about those who are rich. We touched on this briefly in the book of James, I know. Let me just hit it again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There it is. See that? Richly provides for our enjoyment. Command them to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. This is what Jesus says, lay up treasure in heaven. Now here's a distinction. In 6, 5 to 10, he's rebuking those who want to get rich and think that they will be happy when they possess the right things or that by becoming a Christian, they'll get rich or get some profit like the health and wealth, prosperity gospel. Give $100 to my ministry, you'll get 1000 back. That is, that, is, that is wickedness. It's terribly wrong. To use religion to promote greed. And in general, it's wrong to live for riches. But then it says, command those who are rich. And it doesn't say command those who are rich to give it all away. What it says is, command those who are rich not to trust in riches, but to keep hoping in God, to remember their security is not in their riches, but it's in God, and not in anything 
that they can establish for themselves, but also enjoy what God gives. It is possible to get rich without trying to get rich. You can just choose a vocation at which you're good, and somebody else recognizes you're good, and so they pay you a good salary. There's nothing wrong with that. Or you may inherit it from your parents. There's nothing evil in having wealthy parents. There's nothing wrong with being rich. The problem is wanting to get rich. But you should use it to enjoy, yes, verse 18, but also to be generous, to be willing to share. That is the proper use of wealth. Is this a uh, sub-Christian interest in banal daily things? Well, maybe, maybe somebody might say that about Paul. But the truth is, it's good for us to know about daily life. It's good for us to get those, those, those rudiments in front of us. The right attitude toward wealth, the right way to use wealth.